and uh, thank you, Brother Nolan. How many of you read the morning manna this morning? <laughs> I don't intend to embarrass you. I know you haven't had time to do it, and that's the first thing you want to do when the service is over. I understand that. How many of you read the pastor's pen this morning? Well, okay. Then only a few have any idea what the sermon's going to be about this morning. Because both of those in some way related to what we're going to talk about uh, uh, today. The world is watching God's people. They always have. They always will. And they cannot understand God's people. They don't understand why we would, as Christians, refrain from worldly pleasures and restrict ourselves down to the narrow standards that the Bible is set. They don't understand why we would respond to the difficult demands that are put upon us by the Bible. They don't understand why we would rejoice whenever everything seems to be going wrong. And the Christian lifestyle simply does not make sense to them. And their question is, why do they do what they do? That's a good question. Why do we as Christians do what we do? Well, the answer is that our chief concern is to please Christ, and consequently, all we do or should do is for Christ. For several weeks, we've been looking at the different prepositions that are related to Christ, and today we're looking at the little word for and I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 5. Paul says, For we preach not ourselves. I've heard some of that kind of preaching, and I never did enjoy it. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. Second Corinthians is one of my very favorite chapters in all of the Bible, and it addresses issues that are helpful to Christians. I highly recommend that you study every part of this chapter, but begin with chapter 3, verse 18. That's the last verse. And by the time you get to the end of chapter number 4, you'll probably want to go on to chapter number 5. But there is so much here that is very important to our Christian lives. Last week I spoke about the phrase, unto Christ. That describes the manner of what we do. We do what we do as unto Christ. But today I want you to focus on the word for. That speaks about our motive. The manner is unto Christ, but the motive is for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. In other words, the action can be right, but the attitude can be wrong. And there are folks that have given their lives for some good cause. Let's not kid ourselves. There are unsaved people that have done very good things. There are unsaved people that have made great neighbors. They're very helpful. They do the right thing, but it's for the wrong motive. And motive matters to God. If we want to please God, 
then we have to realize that both what we do and why we do it are important to God. So the key to God's approval is found here in these words for the Lord Jesus Christ, for Christ. And that speaks about our motive, and and our motive has a powerful effect upon our actions. So I want you to think about that this morning for Christ. And when I look at this chapter, look at verse 1, for example, and we see the first thing that we ought to do for Christ, first thing mentioned here, is we ought to serve Him faithfully. Paul said, therefore, seeing we have this ministry. I'll tell you, Christianity was not some kind of an entertainment for Paul. It was not some sort of a therapy for Paul. It was a ministry. And he says, we've received this ministry. And as we have received mercy, notice, we faint not. We don't throw in the towel. We don't give up. Why? Because the work we're doing is far too important for us to quit. And and a lot of folks no doubt have wondered why Paul lived as he did. And he describes his life. If you read on, he uses words later on in this chapter like afflictions and necessities and distresses and stripes and imprisonment, uh, etc. He goes on and on. Well, What in the world would motivate a person to intentionally subject himself to those things? Well, verse number 14, he says, of chapter 5, says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. You see, it was for Christ, because of the love of Christ. He is motivated by Christ. What he did was for Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, whenever you look at all of this, his service record, if you please, I think we have to admit you don't find many folks like that today because most people are motivated by the wrong things. Most people are motivated by selfish gain. It might be for self-glory. It might be for sensual gratification. Uh, and, And there are even folks that are of a religious nature, people that are in church every week, people that are professing Christians, and they seem to be faithful, but actually they do what they do only because they derive some enjoyment from it. In other words, they're not motivated solely by the desire to do it for Christ and to please Him, but rather it's this personal satisfaction that they get out of it. I mean, I think we would be lying if we just assumed that every preacher does what he does just because he's doing it for Christ. There are hypocrites in the ministry just like like in politics. Just not as many, maybe. Mark it down. There are some folks that preach because they get a paycheck. They get a paycheck. I've made it a rule over the years whenever the Lord would move me from one church to another to never ask, I don't want to know how much the church gives the pastor. That's not a factor. And I mention that because I can guarantee you, and I know preachers personally have told me themselves that they feel like they have an obligation to take care of their family and so forth. Well, I agree with that. 
But they have an obligation to inquire as to the amount of the salary, the fringe benefits, the retirement program, the vehicle provided, da-da-da. And they insist on answers to those questions. What difference does it make if God's sending you there, He's going to take care of you there? I believe that with all of my heart. So most preachers, believe me, are not in the ministry for the money. That's not their motivation. But, but there are exceptions to that rule. There are others, no doubt. It might be a, an officer in the church that is there because of the pride of the position. I'll never forget years ago, we had a fellow in the church that, not this church, by the way, we had a fellow in the church, and whenever it came time to elect some new officers, we, the church elected him to one office, and after the church service was over, the business meeting, he came to me and said, me and my wife's leaving. We're leaving. Why? Why are you leaving? Well, because I think I'm more qualified to be a deacon in this church than some of those people that are deacons. And wasn't satisfied with being a trustee in the church is where they had put him. Boy, they made a horrible mistake. Put a fellow there that, you know, has got that kind of an attitude. If I can't be a deacon, I don't want to be anything. Well, I'll tell you, someone like that doesn't deserve the position. But believe me, there are people that, that, that are in church offices that that are there and seemingly serve the Lord and love the Lord, but they do what they do because of the pride of the position. Like that makes them somewhat better than others. If people understood what the word deacon really meant, you know, it wouldn't attach so much pride to it because deacons don't run the church as the old Southern Baptist people used to believe. They don't run the church or they shouldn't run the church. They're servants. And we're all servants in a sense. And just because you hold an office in the church doesn't make you better than someone else that is working in the sound room, driving the church van, playing the piano, or one of these other instruments. We all do different things, and we ought to be doing it for the same reason. There are people that sing. I don't think we have any folks like that, but believe me, there are people that have been gifted and able to sing, boy, God has blessed them with a talent, and they love to do it, and they love it because of the applause, that pat on the back at the end of the service, and how great they are. They love that, and there are people like that. Now look, we ought to enjoy what we do whenever we're serving the Lord. You ought to enjoy that. That's fine. And it's a great thing if someone does commend you, if someone gives you a word of prayer, uh, praise, that motivates you and that's well and good. But that should never, ever be the reason you do what you do. It ought to always be for the Lord. For the Lord, we ought to serve Him faithfully, not something that's spasmodic, but something that is faithful you know, be the kind of Christian that can be counted upon. And the thing of it is, a lot of times you think someone is really faithful until something comes along, there's some difficulty that comes into their life. Maybe they don't get the praise they're looking for. Maybe the size of the paycheck isn't what they expected. And so consequently, they up and resign and leave the church. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those faithful few that you can count on year after year after year. People that 
prove that what they do is for the Lord because they're serving God faithfully. And boy, if a church needs anything, it needs those faithful members that can be depended upon. So for Christ, we ought to serve faithfully for no other reason but for Christ. I wonder if we really believe that every member of the church Let's narrow it down, make it personal. Is every member of this church, Lakeway Baptist Church, serving God faithfully? Think about that. And it just might be that someone's here this morning, and if you're honest, you'd have to say, you know, I'm not serving God faithfully. Look, I'm not asking you to do it for me. I'm not asking you to do it for the church. I'm asking you to do it for Christ. That ought to be the motivation. Secondly, what we ought to do what we do for Christ, not only serve Him faithfully, but we ought to sacrifice freely. Because if we're really serving the Lord with the attitude that we ought to have, sacrifice is going to be involved. The word sacrifice means giving up something for another so they won't have to do without it. That's the whole point. That's what Christ demands. That's what Christ deserves. And sacrifice has always characterized God's people. We think about it, the manner in which it was displayed by the generosity of those early churches and those members of the first church and how that they gave. Some of the churches gave above and beyond that which they were able. And in that first church there in Jerusalem, as they gathered together the means whereby that they could care for the other members of the church, they were generous. And then we think about the sacrifice of those who were martyrs. We, we can trace our history as Christian people by the blood of the martyrs that have been shed throughout the centuries. And then we think about the faithful few today, those that can be depended upon and the sacrifices that they make. And believe me, I realize that I, I don't know of any of our members that have recently been nailed to a cross I don't know of any of our members that have suffered in the same sense that those apostles did back in the day. But I tell you, I do know members of the church that sacrificed for the sake of being able to serve God faithfully. They sacrifice. By that I mean they give up something that they could have used. They give up something that they need so that somebody else, it might be a person, it might be a ministry in the church, and they give up what they what they could have used so that ministry or that person, that member of the church, won't have to do without it. And then we think about it, of course, the ultimate example and that's Christ himself and the sacrifice that he made on the cross you know when we think about what he did for us you know we shouldn't need any other reason than that we shouldn't have to look at the martyrs and the apostles and and we shouldn't have to even look around and be motivated by others and believe me there is motivation in seeing the example of those faithful few today I don't call any names and I'm certainly not going to go around here making it known but 
There are many of you that motivate me because just watching your faithfulness week after week and knowing that you're doing what you do for the Lord, that is a motivation. But all the motivation I need is what Jesus did. Because I'm telling you, regardless of what you do, regardless of what this church pays, regardless of any applause, any praise, or anything else, what you do doesn't matter. Somebody says, well, I think I'm going to look for another church. You know, the people just don't appreciate me. Well, in the first place, you probably don't appreciate the church like you should. But in the second place, if that's the only reason you're doing what you do, I'll help you pack. Hit the road because if you stay here, you won't do nothing but cause problems. And we don't need that. We need people that love God enough that says regardless of what anybody else does, I'm going to serve the Lord because I'm doing it for the Lord and they're not going to stop me. I'm going to be faithful in my service and I'm freely going to sacrifice for the sake of others. That's the attitude Paul had in mind when he wrote Philippians 3, 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss, notice, for Christ. Isn't that what Jesus had in mind when he said, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. A lot of folks are dissatisfied with life. They go through life miserable. And the reason they're so miserable is because they're trying to cling to self. They're trying to hang on to those things that they mistakenly believe will bring satisfaction. And that's not what satisfies any person. We're satisfied only to the extent that God is pleased with what we do. And sometimes that requires us to sacrifice freely, without any coercement, without any, any rebuke from the pulpit, without anyone trying to encourage us, just freely give, sometimes above and beyond that which we're even able. But now look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 4, and here we see the third thing that we ought to do for Christ. We ought to suffer forgivingly. Suffer forgivingly. Paul says, For we which live are always delivered unto death, notice, for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest, might be revealed in our mortal flesh. Do you remember the account of Paul's conversion recorded back in Acts chapter number 9? It's really an amazing story. They're on the road to Damascus. And after he was saved, the Lord put him in touch with a man by the name of Ananias. And this is what the Lord said to him concerning Paul. Acts 9, 16. I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I will show him. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems strange to me it seems strange to tell a new christian becoming a christian being saved is not going to solve all of your problems it's not going to eliminate all of the suffering in your life you're going to have to suffer notice he said for my name's sake now you would think that you'd want to say something to encourage a new christian like 
Hey, you're a child of God now. You don't have anything to worry about. God is your heavenly Father and heaven is your home. The Holy Spirit is your helper. You don't have anything. You just get in the will of God and God will take care of you. He'll supply everything you need. You'll never get sick. You can drive a Cadillac, live in a mansion, blah, blah, blah. The prosperity gospel, so-called, that's promoted by a lot of folks. The Lord didn't do that. He never calls us to follow Him under false pretense. He wants us to know what to expect so we can prepare for it. And boy, when we study the life of the Apostle Paul, we know that those things that God predicted all came true because he suffered throughout his ministry. A preacher many, many years ago said something to the effect, and I can't quote it perfectly, But he says, we have more from Paul's prison letters than we do from his trip to the third heaven. We learn more from Paul's prison letters than him being caught up into the third heaven. Because when that happened, the Lord said, or the Peter, or Paul said, I saw things it's not lawful for a man to utter. I can't even talk to you about it. I can't tell you about it. I'm not going to write a book about it. He had that experience, but it was the experience of being in prison where God used him so greatly to write book after book after book in the Word of God. And Paul himself tells us again and again that we ought to expect suffering. One of the best verses I know is in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. Listen to this. He says, For unto you it is given... Hang on that word. Unto you, talking about Christians, it is given. And this is a church that was ministering to others by supporting the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Here's a church that, was, that he commended for several different things. And he says, unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's as though Paul is saying that suffering is a gift. It's given unto you. It's a, like God giving you the gift of suffering. You say, well, I don't understand that. You don't need to understand it. Just understand that God has a plan for each and every one of us. And sometimes it's through our suffering. Sometimes it's through those things that we would never choose for ourselves that God uses those things to make us the person he wants us to be. He said to Timothy, Yea, and all that will, because not everybody will, And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's emphatic, folks. That's just a bold, blunt, true statement that if we do live godly in Christ, we are going to suffer persecution in some form. 
Aren't you glad that here in America, at least for the time being, that we are protected by the laws of the land, that we're not being tarred and feathered, we're not being nailed to a cross? Thank God for that. But that doesn't mean that you won't suffer persecution of some kind whenever you live out and out for God, do everything God wants you to do in some way or another. The world that is watching you is going to put you to the test and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be persecution discipleship has always been costly and down through the ages the saints of God have suffered for Christ looking at that I don't know why in the world that we uh, we feel that we have uh, the right to expect life to be any easier for us and let's face it we really do because there are a lot of times things happen in our life that we don't understand things that we don't appreciate, things beyond our comprehension. And, and, and it's as though we, we ask that why question, why me, why this, why now? And it's, it's as though we're saying to God, is this really necessary? I mean, after all, you know, I'm in church every week. After all, I give, a, I give more than 10%. After all, I, I sing in the choir and I do this and that. And some way or another, we get it in our mind that we ought to be exempt from the trials of life. But that's not true. This is what Peter said. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. In other words, don't think you're the only one that's going to go through this suffering, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. In other words, we don't appreciate it now, but we will then. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. And on their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. If we live for Christ, we can't always escape suffering, but we can do something about our attitude toward suffering. Because if we will learn how to accept afflictions with the right attitude, it becomes profitable then, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse 10, therefore I take pleasure. Think about that. I take pleasure in knowing that this virus will soon end. I take pleasure in knowing that the storm missed us. I take pleasure in knowing I got a raise last week. I take now, what's he about to say? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. And having the right attitude means that we have to be willing to forgive those who cause us to suffer. Whenever you study the life of Paul and you think about the attitude some of those churches had toward him. In fact, the church at Corinth, there were those members that, that berated him, those that said he was a liar, those that said he can't be trusted. And yet Paul never quit. Paul continued on. He loved them all the more, as he said, 
Although the more I love you, the less I be loved by you. That was true of a lot of people that he served. And the thing that made the difference is he was willing to forgive those who had offended him. And if we don't, then we become bitter and of no use to God in his service. That's where a lot of folks are right now. They're bitter because of something that has happened in the past. And there are some folks that are living and looking way back years ago in the past. Someone offended them. Someone mistreated them. Someone neglected or hurt them in some way. And they had a legitimate complaint to the extent that they acknowledged that a wrong was committed. But it's never right for us to just hang on to that and to become bitter toward those people we've got to get past the past if we want God to forgive us and God to use us we've got to get back to living life as it is now Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now that was the command of the Lord. That's a part of the Beatitudes. That is our Lord telling us what our attitude ought to be toward that. And by the way, the first church listened to that. Because in Acts chapter 5, remember... They're being persecuted now by the unbelievers. And it says in Acts chapter 5 verse 40, And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So far so good. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They didn't stop preaching Jesus and they didn't get bitter at those that had beaten them, those that had imprisoned them, those that had threatened them. They kept doing what they had been doing, what they should have been doing, and they did it with a sweet attitude. They are rejoicing. Can you imagine some of those, some of those pious Pharisees watching them and scratching their heads saying, how in the world could they rejoice? They just got the daylights beat out of them, and there they are out on the street corner again talking about Jesus with a smile on their face and joy in their heart. They didn't understand that. The world never understands, never understands a disciple and their devotion and what they do for Christ. Boy, Paul gave some of the best advice we'll ever read there in Ephesians 4, verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, here it is, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. For Christ's sake, God was willing to forgive you. And I say to you, for Christ's sake, you ought to be willing to suffer forgivingly those that have mistreated you forgive them anyway i'll tell you what if you really knew 
the great need of their life, you'd probably have pity upon them instead of anger toward them. They're to be pitied, and we, we can't possibly reach other people if we get bitter at them. Now, about now, no doubt, we're scratching our head and wondering, well, all of this sounds well and good, you know, that we ought to serve God faithfully. I know, preacher, that that's what we ought to do, and we ought to sacrifice even freely, and we ought to suffer forgivingly toward others, but that's a tall order for somebody short on talent, you know, like we are, and we just don't have the ability. So, you know, how in the world can, can we do that? Well, here's the answer. We have to surrender fully. Surrender fully. Because it seems like an impossible assignment to do those three things that I just mentioned some folks would say well it's 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 unreasonable that that God has no right to impose such high expectations upon us because after all we're only human how many times have you heard that well you know I'm just human what do you expect doesn't make any difference what I expect. It's what God expects out of us. That's what really matters. And being as weak as we are, how is it possible to meet those demands? And there is only one answer, and that answer is for us to surrender ourselves fully unto the Lord. I've been talking about the apostles and here again, we see them and their example. That's exactly what they did in Luke 5 and verse 11 says, And they forsook all and followed him. That's the way it ought to be. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, that's what God's expecting from each and every one of us, that we surrender ourselves without any hesitation, without any reservation whatsoever, that we fully surrender ourselves to Him, that we give Him our life like a, like a, a blank piece of paper given to the great composer and let Him write His own composition upon it. Let Him do as He pleases with our life. Listen to these demands. Luke chapter number 14, the demands of discipleship. I'll just read them. I don't need to comment on them. Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The next verse, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. When it comes to discipleship, there's no double standard, no bargain basement sales, no reduction in price. There's no middle ground. We either are willing to forsake all to follow him or we're not true disciples at all. And boy, that really narrows it down because let's be honest, how many people do you suppose have really forsaken all to follow Christ? 
Somebody, you know, says, well, I'd be willing to die for the Lord. Well, that's well and good, but chances are the Lord doesn't want you to die for Him. He wants you to live for Him. How many people do you know that make serving God their number one priority in life? Let's make it more personal than that, and I'll be through. Have you fully surrendered yourself to the Lord? Because that's the key to being able to do those other three things that we've talked about this morning. And that's the evidence of our love for the Lord. The Lord tells us that in John chapter number 14, if a man love me, he will keep my commandments. In other words, if we truly love God, we will, we will embrace those demands and we will fully surrender ourselves to the Lord. By the way, that's an ongoing process. That's not a one-time deal that happens during a revival meeting and then it's over for life. We have to die daily, so to speak. Fully surrender ourselves. It's evidence of our love for Christ. It's what, what the church needs from its members. Just members that will fully surrender themselves to the Lord. No tell them what God will do with this church or any other church if every member does exactly that. If we just come to him saying, Lord, I don't know what in the world you're going to do with me. I'm not worth, I'm not worth anything. I, I don't have any special talent. I don't have any great ability. But Lord, it doesn't matter to me. Whatever it is that you would have me to do, I'm willing to do that. That's what the church needs. By the way, that's what's best for you. It's always what's best for us. God's will is not only right, it's best and it's safest. The famous missionary C.T. Studd many years ago wrote the little poem that all of us know by heart, at least the first part, that says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That's true. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is as hay, wood, and stubble. None of it will endure. But whenever we do it for Christ, that will follow us into eternity and we'll receive that great reward that Christ spoke about. But the next line in that poem says this, And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That's the way we ought to feel about our life. For something to be burned out, that it, it is consumed. I, I mean, somebody says, you know, if you don't take some time to rest once in a while, you know, you're going you're gonna to burn out. I, I agree if the preacher said, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out from sitting around not doing anything. But whatever we do, we do it for the Lord, and we ought to do it with all of our heart without any reservation because if Christ be God and so sacrificed himself on the cross at Calvary, if he did that, there can be no sacrifice that's too great for you and I. 
Others won't understand it. I had a daddy come to me years ago. His teenage son had recently uh, professed Christ as his Savior. And his daddy came to me and was so, so concerned about his son that he was afraid he was having some sort of a breakdown. Some, he had become some kind of a religious nut, at least in his estimation, because th this boy, and he, by the way, he was a young Christian. He didn't really know a lot. But he was giving other people his coat and stuff like that. And the daddy said, he's just gone off of the deep end. He, he's become a religious fanatic. I'll tell you what, that is a whole lot better than being in the condition of a lot of people to where we're not willing to sacrificially give of anything, as it were, for Christ. I, I mention that because the world's not going to, the world's not going to understand you. When I was pastoring in Missouri, I'll never forget a couple in the church had had, a, had an argument. And the argument was because the, we'd had a missionary and the, the wife suggested afterwards the missionary had alluded to the fact that traveling on debutation, going around trying to raise his support and his tires were slick and what have you. And so she suggested to the husband that we ought to buy him a new set of tires. And this fellow went ballistic, you know. He, he didn't understand. And I'll tell you, people will never understand. They'll never understand the devotion of a disciple until they get there themselves and realize that's the only thing really worth living for. Will you surrender yourself fully to him this morning? Whatever that means, for some of you, you need, you need to start where life starts, and that is by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. For those of you that have been saved, and maybe, maybe it's just, well, you've, you know, you've, you've hung around for many years now around Christians, and, and you've been somewhat involved in the Lord's work, but you've never really fully taken your hands off of your life and just said, Lord, you're the potter and I'm the clay and just take me and mold me and make me. I, I don't care what it is you want me to do. I'm willing to do anything. Just show me what you want me to do, and I'll serve you. I'll do it for Christ's sake. I hope, I hope that you will. Our Father, we thank you this morning for what Jesus did for us. I thank you, Lord, for being willing to receive us for Christ's sake. And now I pray that for Christ's sake, that each and every one of us might determine that with your help, by your grace, that we'll surrender ourselves fully, and that we will just yield ourselves without any reservation and allow you to do whatever it is that's in your perfect will with our lives. Forgive us of the times that we're cold and indifferent, the times that, Lord, that we get calloused and, and just uh, neglect our responsibilities, our responsibilities to others and mainly our responsibility toward you. And, Lord, whenever everything seems to be going wrong and the bottom falls out and we're in pain or whatever the difficulty is, help us to understand that we never have the right to complain about what's going on in our life because we all have it better than what we deserve. And if you did nothing but save us, we'd have no reason to, to complain. So help us, like Paul, rejoice 
even in the midst of all of our trials and that others might see the difference that Jesus makes and they might trust him as their Lord and Savior as well. For we pray in his name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing this morning, page 433.